Hello, and welcome back to Matters Season 2. This podcast is brought to you by Clio, the world's leading provider of cloud-based legal software. I'm Nefra McDonald, and I'm the Affinity Partnerships Manager here at Clio. And as always, I'm joined by my fearless co-host, Jack Newton. Also, I should mention Clio's founder and CEO. We are so glad to be back in the studio to bring you this episode. As you know, season two of Matters is focused on client-centered lawyering and how many law firms are slow to adopt this new model for legal service delivery. And as we know, that hesitancy to evolve is a symptom of some larger issues in the legal system. So today, we are diving deep into what's broken in legal. And Nefra, because we are solution-oriented people by nature, we're also going to look at what needs to improve and how lawyers and law firms can adjust to suit the needs of clients in this rapidly changing business environment. To bring all of this to life for you, for this episode, I spoke to a practicing lawyer, a legal industry expert, and a data scientist. Tackling how to fix legal isn't easy, Jack, but I think with the caliber of guests we have lined up, this is going to be one for the books. And speaking of books, if you're interested in learning more about adopting the client-centered model in the legal industry, check out Jack's book, The Client-Centered Law Firm. Thanks for plugging the book, Nefra. Now, to get into our topic, our first guest today is Erin Levine. If you don't know of Erin, she is the founder of both a successful family law firm and also a burgeoning legal tech startup that is changing the way people navigate divorce. After the launch of her online do-it-yourself divorce platform called Hello Divorce, the American Bar Association awarded Erin its James I. Keene Memorial Award for Excellence in E-Lawyering. And at the 2019 Clio Cloud Conference, Erin received the Reisman Award for Legal Innovation. The work she's doing is absolutely changing the game. In her conversation with Jack, she shares perspective about what's not working in legal and how she's going about fixing it. I think there is a real disconnect between how consumers access other services and products versus how they interact with legal. And it causes a lot of frustration on the consumer's part. I think part of it is that we view law in a vacuum, primarily because law is so complex and we don't have much time or energy to think outside of it, nor can we bill for it in the most. So it becomes this thing where we have created a system where we expect that once the legal issue is resolved, everything else in their life will fall into place. We don't coordinate with other uh, products or services that could really help people through whatever problem that they're facing. So the legal issue may be resolved, but then they're sort of left flailing and uncomfortable and not too happy with their lawyers. Maybe popping up a level and thinking about how this broken legal system is is actually falling short in terms of what it should be delivering to consumers that have legal problems. Can you, can you talk about some of the concrete ways you see the system as it stands falling short? Sure. And I'm sure that most of your guests will say the same, but I have to start here because it's so glaringly obvious. And if it's not, people need to know that the vast majority of people can't access the legal help that they need. They can't get meaningful help or information 
in a way that solves their problem. And of course, on the other side of things, there's this huge opportunity for lawyers that we are completely missing out on the 75, 80% of people that really need some help, but our model for the most part, especially that billable hour model doesn't necessarily lend itself to a model that's going to be profitable for the lawyer and also work to solve the consumer's problem. Tell me more about why you think the legal system needs to change? I think that the legal system needs to change because it's not working. It's not working for a lot of lawyers and it's not working for a lot of consumers and we can do so much better. As an example, I had, um, I'm in the process of getting my house ready for sale And I had somebody working on my house doing some painting. And he told me that he received a three-day notice to leave his property. And um, he was very concerned about it and didn't know where or how to look for the information or services that he might need. And he had an interesting situation in that he wouldn't necessarily be considered a tenant. He would be more considered a lodger. But in many cities and states, there's laws around that that will be able to help people avoid being kicked out at the last minute, especially during COVID. So he had no idea where to look, what was the reliable information, whether or not he would need a lawyer, and if so, how to obtain one. That's a big problem right there because lawyers have this huge opportunity to gain trust with their consumers by providing reliable information, information that isn't necessarily motivated by fear and doesn't necessarily wait until there's a critical problem at hand. If lawyers could start to reach out to people long before that to be able to help avoid some of these problems, to provide this reliable information that will help people access their rights and know what their responsibilities are, then not only will that lawyer or that service be top of mind when somebody has a challenge with something like landlord-tenant rights, but these lawyers will now be able to access the clients that they might not ordinarily have been able to. So I think a real fundamental aspect of law, especially when it's so specialized and it can change based on not just the state or province, but the municipality, um, the courthouse itself, is to get reliable information out there. Knowledge is power. And most people, when they struggle with a legal issue, the first and most prominent emotion is fear. And people do really irrational, messy things when they're scared. And so if we can help to alleviate that fear, if we can really put our thoughts, our energy uh, into education, then it's going to benefit the profession and it's really going to benefit our community. And frankly, if we don't do it, somebody else will. And I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of non-lawyers educating people on their rights and responsibilities unless they have a very solid understanding of the different nuances that come up in the law. Like it's going to be a very long time before we can change the legal system until we can actually change how courts operate 
change how we interact with the legal system. So right now, our biggest focus needs to be, in my opinion, on how people navigate that system and helping people to the extent possible opt out of it entirely. So Aaron, you obviously saw part of the legal system that you viewed as broken when you founded Hello Divorce. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about the opportunity that you saw and how you brought to bear new thinking around how you might be able to approach divorce? Definitely. I. What I saw was that I had a team of really well-intentioned, good lawyers, kind lawyers, and yet our cases were still getting completely out of hand. Super expensive for the consumer and exhausting and heartbreaking for the lawyers. One thing that I wanted to do was it was very clear that there was a need that no matter what, if you are getting a divorce, you have to go through a legal process. There's no way around that. That's what this country says you have to do. And quite frankly, most of the world. So how can we help navigate people through that process with lawyers, but without going through a messy, expensive, heartbreaking, angry process? And I saw this really big opportunity because of course I've read the stats and the research on the fact of that the vast majority of divorces in this country, in the US and beyond, have at least one self-represented party. And I also saw that there were a lot of DIY type companies that were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on marketing. So if there wasn't an opportunity there, if there wasn't a business opportunity, then they wouldn't be doing that. Um, and so I, I looked around to see what other ex options existed. And while there were some great ones that provide forms to people, as we know, divorce is not a transaction. It is a process, a legal process that people need to go through. And forms for most people aren't enough. They need support in many different areas of their life, whether it be financial literacy, um, all the way through learning how to co-parent, learning how to establish new rituals down to who and when you have your morning coffee. Everything changes when you get divorced. And so I saw this amazing opportunity to blend law and um, life and change the conversation around divorce and change how we do divorce. The next big challenge was seeing if we could do it in a way that not only worked for the consumer, meaning they were successful in their divorce and ending their marriage in a way that comported with their integrity, but also if we could make a living as lawyers and legal professionals, because I knew that I would not be able to convince any lawyer to sort of hop on the bandwagon if they weren't going to make any money. Like we worked really hard to get here in our profession, to become subject matter experts, uh, to get our education. I mean, we worked really hard and it's reasonable to expect that we would want to be able to support ourselves and our families. And that's when I sort of put together this minimal viable product, if you will, that combined uh, technology and legal assistants, lawyers, mediators, and financial professionals to create different levels of help for a divorce. 
the first goal was to really provide something, like I said, that would be successful, that would be profitable, but that also could include lawyers and ensure that, that they could earn a living. And we found out very quickly, launching only in California, that this was something that was going to work for everyone. I think I might have shared with you early on, but our lawyers made the same or more. And they were much happier sort of transitioning into a coaching role, into a dispute resolution role um, versus always having to litigate. Our consumers made it through that first year. 97% of them made it through Hello Divorce start to finish. Now, it could be that many of them started at a DIY level and then up either up-leveled their tier or added on an hour or two with a lawyer, but almost everyone that first year made it through the hello divorce process. And because we were leveraging so much technology and legal assistants who go far beyond the law. In fact, legal assistants, I think, side note, are the most underutilized profession in our industry because to become a legal assistant, you would need to have so many different skills other than like being able to fill out forms. So really maximizing their use, bringing in lawyers only for what they are best at, at what they enjoy, and then continuing to iterate on our software so that we could not only provide the tools to get the divorce done, but provide the support that people need as they're traveling from, as I like to say, we to me. I went off on a total tangent there, and I'm not sure if I answered the initial question. I, I think we actually got you know a, a lot there. If, if you rewind a little bit, I, I think the one, the tangent you got off from a little bit was, I think you were starting in on your lawyers are doing just as well, if not better economically, your clients, like 97% are, are getting through that first year. But I, I, I think to round that out, hearing like the consumers are getting the outcomes they want at a much lower cost basis. And you've saved, I remember the number you shared at one point was like millions of dollars of like cumulative legal fees of probably a lot of people that wouldn't have been able to afford a, a full-blown traditional divorce, right? Like kind of that access to justice piece. I'd love to break that down a little bit more because yes, I mean, early on, we weren't actually making money from the DIY piece, but we were able to subsidize the DIY piece by charging more for the other services. And then as our technology became more and more efficient, we actually were able to establish a profit margin there. And so I think what's really going to be critical, and I bet you would agree with me on this, is that especially when it comes to B2C, um, lawyers who are helping consumers on consumer-related legal issues, that we expand the model, that we look beyond billable model. And I, I know that's hard because I made a lot of money on the billable hour model. And I probably could have kept doing that uh, for a little bit longer but not without completely burning out, not without really struggling with the fact that I didn't think I was resolving people's issues in the way that they needed, wanted, and were asking. And quite frankly, I think we are in a time period where regulations are beginning to change, consumers are pushing back, and this will change. We will be required to provide more access better services. And if we don't do it as lawyers, if we don't take that opportunity, then other business professionals will. And I, I really do think that we're 
best suited. No one knows their consumer and no one knows the law better than us. We just have to think about how we can package up those services in a way that makes the most sense for our quality of life and the consumer getting what they need. I find it to be so incredibly exciting to think about all these people that at this point in time can't access legal help and we have an opportunity to help them. One thing that we're working on in Florida, which I am so excited about, is that, and we're doing this in partnership with A to J Tech, which is a firm, a development firm in Denver that has lawyers, designers, and developers on their team, is asking our um, consumers in Florida questions in Spanish and having all the resources and content and videos in Spanish, but having the output the forms themselves that they have to file with the court be in English. So that way, if English is their second language or they don't know English at all, they can still access their rights. They can still end their marriages or seek child custody or co-parenting orders in a way that makes sense for them. People are, are willing to pay if they can afford and most people can afford something. And they're a lot more willing to pay for lawyers if a huge part of their legal issue was resolved through technology and legal assistance or maybe financial professionals. I've never had someone say that they were really upset about the fact that they had to pay for one or two or three hours of time with a lawyer, but I can't tell you how many times in my own practice I've had people say, why is the bill $20,000? So it's a huge headache off our shoulders. And at the same time, we're getting to serve people that ordinarily wouldn't have access. And it's those people that are, make too much money to be able to qualify for something like legal aid, but they absolutely don't make enough money. They might not even have $500 in the bank to be able to pay for a lawyer in the traditional sense. I feel like for me, the big takeaway from what she's saying, because it came up a lot in that conversation, is that lawyers know both the law and consumers of legal services better than anyone, which means that lawyers are perfectly set up to change this broken model. Exactly. And I think the really important piece there is that lawyers need to do it before someone without the care for their clients and the respect for the law does it first. There's a huge opportunity for lawyers that's right there for the taking. Like Aaron said, law firms really need to start thinking about offering potential clients the meaningful information and help they're looking for. Yeah, and to start looking at the billable hour service model, which is not often in anyone's interest. It leaves a lawyer burnt out and the client frustrated and angry. So how do you change a system that's broken for both lawyers and their clients? That's what I spoke to Jordan Furlong about. You might remember Jordan from episode one of this season. He's a legal analyst and consultant who founded the Law 21 blog, and he really laid out for me the key areas that need to change in the legal system. You know what? I'm going to choose three, and I'll, and I'll just run them past real fast, and I will list them to you in ascending order of difficulty. Not to say any of them are easy, but the, you know they get harder as they go along. Uh, the first would be to establish a regime of legal services regulation that has public trust. That is to say, when members of the public or consumers or companies or governments look at the regulatory system, regime, governor, whatever the case might be, and they evaluate this governor and regulator, they say, yes, 
this particular regulator, they're an honest broker. They understand the purpose of regulation. They understand that they need to balance the idea of accessibility to service with the uh, guarding against the risk of bad service, because fundamentally that's what regulation is, right? Access versus risk. And so I think in many jurisdictions, that level of public trust is not there. I think in a number of cases, it is not there on merit. And I think in order for us to really start making progress in this area, we have to have a regulatory system that genuinely uh, generates trust among members of the public that they are fair, that they're honest brokers, and that they're looking out for the best interests of the of consumers, of the society, and people in general. Second thing we need to do is to fundamentally reconsider the lawyer formation process, how you go about bringing a person from the first day of law school to the day when this person considers themselves correctly to be an independent, competent, proficient, confident lawyer. And that process is a whole lot longer than three years, right? Our, our current regulatory system pretends otherwise. It says that after three years, you got your law degree, you pass the bar exam, boom, you're a lawyer. And the reality on the ground is that it's at least twice as long to do that, uh, in many cases, much longer. So we need to fundamentally rethink the formation process. And the third and hardest thing to do, because these first two weren't hard enough, the third and hardest thing we need to do is to help bring about a reconfiguration of the core nature of the business model of lawyer services, which is to say we need to make a switch away from a volume-based system towards a value-based system. Because since time immemorial, lawyers have made their money through their own efforts. It's an input-based system. The amount of work I can get to do, the amount of time I take to do it, and the amount of money I can charge per hour in order to do it. That is volume-based. That is input-based. It has nothing to do with the value or the outcome or the result or the experience. In other words, the client might as well not even be part of the whole operation. To move from that to a value system is what we need to do. We are starting to make that shift now. We're starting to see that shift now. And the reason is that clients in various areas, and we're seeing it largely first in the corporate world, but we will see it elsewhere in due course, clients are coming to the realization to say, okay, you want to charge your services by volume. That's fine. It's a free country. Here's the thing. It's in our interests to diminish that volume as much as we possibly can, to do as much work as we can for ourselves, to integrate uh, solutions of various kinds into our own systems and processes, to find other suppliers for bits and pieces of the work that we don't need you for, such that when we do need you to solve our legal problems, they are very high quality, they are very high stakes, they are very complex, and we're happy to give that to you at that point, but there's going to be a whole lot less of it than there was before. And that is a reality that I don't think the legal profession can escape. We need to recognize that the value over volume proposition is common to this sector, and we need to change our thinking. We need to change our approaches to how we do business in order to uh, accommodate ourselves to that state of affairs. Jordan, you have the perspective of working with a lot of senior leaders at, at law firms around the world. I'm, I'm curious, from those interactions, can you describe how clear the 
challenges ahead and the kind of change that needs to happen is to to those law firm leaders and and to to what degree do you think they feel the level of urgency that maybe they should around this this transformation and and the the urgency with which it needs to happen yeah it's interesting you know because i think amongst the leaders of law firms which we can count managing partners and practice group leaders or uh, administrators or what have you as well as other organizations regulatory and associations and what have you writ large people in a leadership position decision making position in the legal sector on the supply side especially i think they do get it i think in fact they've gotten it for quite some time i you know i would have said even 10 years ago when i was regularly appearing in front of law firm retreats and association meetings and speaking to people and even then amongst the leaders of these organizations they knew they could see it coming maybe because they had the the capacity and i guess the mandate to watch over that part of the market to watch over that part of the world and see what was coming as opposed to your rank and file lawyers who are heads down at the keyboard at the computer doing the work billing the hours so the awareness is there and i think the appreciation of the stakes and the urgency with which it has to be dealt with what i think has been missing well what we know has been missing is the execution the implementation the okay, if this is such a big problem and if it's so urgent, why aren't we doing anything about it? And, and I don't think it is because these leaders don't take it seriously enough. Uh, I, I don't even think necessarily it's that a lot of the people in these firms don't take it seriously enough. I just think that especially for leaders, they are inundated with the urgent and the important and the compelling and much of it is absolutely right in front of you this minute this hour has to be dealt with it's pressure from very influential partners it is pressure from very influential clients it is all the political stuff that goes into running an organization of any kind just getting through the day is a hard job these days you know even it was even before the pandemic and for, for a leader, you have to be able to balance that short-term versus long-term. And, and the good leaders do that. They, they find a way to strike that balance to say, we will deal with the issues of, of today, but in a parallel track, we're also going to make these large-scale changes. The reality, though, is that the combination of so many in-your-face urgent issues that have to be dealt with right now, and we only have so much bandwidth, plus the fact that bringing about change in any organization is hard, bringing it about in an organization filled with lawyers who, as I like to say, it's not that lawyers are any more change averse than anybody else, I don't think. I just think lawyers are a whole lot better at resisting it. <laughs> I think lawyers have much better ways to argue and to evade because this is what lawyers do, right? Lawyers come up with all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't do something. This is 80% of legal advice. Don't do what you want to do and this is why it's very easy to apply that to your own business. So it's it, it really is a bit of a perfect storm of factors. And I have great sympathy because I have dealt with many law firm leaders and managing partners who genuinely want to bring about change in their organizations, but they just run into these incredible headwinds. And at a certain point, they say, I just can't. I just can't. I've got to deal with the fires in front of me today. I, I can't think any more about the fires that may come tomorrow. I understand that. I, I it, it's, it's unfortunate and it's going to have an impact down the road, but I think that's probably what's happening in that situation. Jordan says the legal industry is in a perfect storm right now. He's so right. 
And at the center of that perfect storm are consumers who are more than willing to do things themselves if a client-centered approach isn't being offered to them. Well, like Jordan said, clients are now willing to do some of the work themselves, both because it's often more convenient and it streamlines the work they're doing with their lawyer. And naturally, they want to keep their bills low. That means leaving a complex, highly specialized work to their lawyer. This is one of the trends we're seeing in the legal space, and there's data to back it up, which we referenced in the 2020 Legal Trends Report. In 2018, the World Justice Project released the results of a 2017 survey and their report, Global Insights on Access to Justice, and their poll found that 77% of Americans and 86% of Canadians with legal problems did not turn to an authority or third party to help resolve their issue. In Mexico, that number jumped to 89%. Those numbers are really indicative of the problem here. That's a huge population of North Americans not being served by the legal industry in any kind of meaningful way. I also want to key into something Jordan said that I don't think we've heard much so far this season. This idea that lawyers do have the awareness that there's an urgent change that needs to be made, but they're so busy putting out today's fires that they don't have the space to look ahead to preventing tomorrow's fires. That's a great point, Nefra. And that reminds me of the saying that sometimes you need to slow down to speed up. That's what I spoke to Nika Kabiri about. We've heard from Nika before on this podcast, but as a reminder, she's a JD PhD who studies data science related to the way people make decisions. And she uses that expertise to help businesses drive strategic growth. Here's part of my conversation with Nika. It feels like a lot of that mentality around fighting not to lose is kind of endemic to the legal industry and and this risk aversion, you know, the, all, all sorts of macro level factors that we see uh, with lawyers basically saying, if I play it safe, maybe I can, I can eke out uh, a living here and find a way to survive. Instead of thinking, I'm going to play to win. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to build a really thriving law firm by, by adapting to these rapidly evolving and changing consumer expectations. C- can you talk about what what you see as as maybe some of the structural issues in the legal industry that that set it up for at least a struggle when it comes to innovating and adapting? Totally. I see two things happening at the same time. The first is just status quo bias, which is this preference for things being the way they are. It's safe. You know, it's safe for things to stay the same. You are much more likely to regret something you do than something you don't do. And this is from research in behavioral economics. So a lot of lawyers are really kind of stuck to, or they feel this inertia to get stuck to the status quo because it's safer. The regret would be less. They're already in it. They're already experiencing their turns from that. It's not terrible. Um, and then, but it's just, it's not, it's not enough to win the fight. It's enough to survive. And we don't even know how long it is you, that a law firm these days can, can just survive doing the status quo anymore either. Um, but the other thing that I see in addition to status quo bias is this idea of loss aversion, which is that we are much more likely to value what we have than what we could get. So um, we don't want to make a choice that will let will force us to sort of let go of the successes that we've already experienced, even though we know that by doing so, we could open the door up to much more success. It's a bias. I mean, it feels very real. It feels really kind of deep and intense and emotional. Like this is my thing and I don't want to let it go, but it is your mind playing tricks on you. Because if you think about things rationally, 
taking new steps, adopting new approaches, new practices that can be proven, analytically proven to level up your practice, um, that is much more of a rational reason to, to adopt new technologies than an uneasy feeling. So I would recommend you know, let go of that uneasy feeling and just question the status quo. I mean, safety isn't always the best way to go. So let's let's pop up uh, a level maybe and look at some of the the impacts that the current state of the legal industry and the current way that most law practices operate. Some of the some of the negative impacts uh, this this have. When, when you look on a macro level, what are some of the ways you've seen the legal industry failing to address client needs? <laughs> Where do you start? I I remember what it was in like in law school and never having a class on client services, right? Never never knowing knowing what that meant. And then going on to study sociology and studying like the sociology of professionalism and how different professions develop a culture or um, institutions to protect those professions and then studying the legal profession in that way and seeing how there is really no place, there's no conversation um, about the client or what the, the client needs. It's, uh, and most professions are this way, it's about furthering the professional. It's about um, elevating the professional as a professional. When at the end of the day, lawyers are public servants. And you know, we as business people are public servants. We should all be serving the public to some extent. And you've, Jack, you've, I'll bring it up, I brought it up before, and I'll say it again. When you talk about, you know, access to justice as being a product market fit problem, I mean, that's exactly what it is. We need access to justice. Businesses can solve that problem. But the legal profession isn't set up that way. And, and there's a path dependence there too. Like, Every ABA meeting you go to, I'm sure, there isn't an injection of, of let's talk about the client, right? There's just no disruption or innovation in that in those conversations. So the entire institution is there to elevate the lawyer. And by doing so, it's not that the consumer is forgotten. It's just the consumer is kind of forgotten. I mean, they are. They're, they're not purposely forgotten, but there's just no room for them. So... What I see as a real problem is the fact that there isn't a push to care less about status and professionalism or care less about being a lawyer and care more about being available, accessible and being a servant. Um, and I don't know what would cause that cultural shift. I don't, maybe a broad scale social movement, maybe it would have to come from like consumers demanding more, um, but, or it could be from the adoption of new technologies that put the client first. You know, you, you touched on this in your your previous answer, Nika. But maybe maybe you could you know just reiterate it in, in a slightly different way as well. This the current mindset, which is more lawyer centric than it is client centric. How does that contribute to the current access to justice crisis, which you know has been highlighted in in pretty stark terms over the course of the last the last year, and is is certainly set to only worsen as we see the effects of COVID-19 play out over the coming years. T tell us more about that impact. If you're, if you're thinking about your success as a professional, you're thinking about your status, you're thinking about how much money you're making, and you're really thinking about how your peers see you, right? Which a lot of lawyers really care about that. 
then you don't have the mental bandwidth to care about people who need your help. There's only so much energy in your brain for any given thing. And if you're preoccupied with the things that the legal profession is telling you, you need to be preoccupied with, then it's no surprise that you're not going to remember or consider why you became a lawyer in the first place, which is help help the people who need it. It, it sounds as simple and as difficult as, as a, a misalignment of incentives problem. Absolutely. And it's, it's made difficult. It's a, it is a simple thing, but it's made difficult because there's this social pressure. There's a pressure from the legal profession, from the institution of law to, to be a certain way, to be a certain type of lawyer, to where success is measured by certain criteria, like, like status, like exposure, like press attention or or um, income, um, when when that's not that shouldn't be what lawyering is about. If, if we zoom out to the institutional level, what are some of the institutional changes we can look to to drive to to help push the industry in a better direction? This is a tough question because the institution itself is resistant to change. It's just so resistant to change. So the fact that there are business solutions to legal problems, I think, I really do believe is a great start. And it's it's also, it kind of functions as, let me put it this way. I think businesses like Clio or companies that offer legal services to consumers directly online, all these different new ways of offering either lawyers a better way or consumers a better way, they're breaking through those little cracks in the armor of the old institutions. They're, they're kind of seeping into the fissures and breaking them apart um, from the outside. And the reason they're doing this is because they are solving problems way better than traditional legal institutions have been solving them. Um, you can get a divorce faster online. You can get an, you know, an immigration um, application filed very quickly online. You can bill your clients easily and get paid online. You can reach more people much more easily online. Um, it, it's just so it just speaks for itself the effectiveness of these of these solutions. And the consumer does have a lot of power. And I think that's where a lot of these old institutions are, are myopic because they don't really recognize the power that the average consumer has these days. And um, and I think it's not whatever change happens probably won't come from the inside. It will come from those organizations, entities, businesses that have the consumers back and are actually trying to solve product market fit. They're trying to do what consumers want. And the power of the dollar is probably ultimately what's going to make that change. I think there's a there's a distinction to be made between the institution of law and lawyers that are in that institution. Because as you know, Jack, Cleo knows a lot of lawyers who are on board with this change. Like there are lawyers out there who are fighting that fight and wanting to really help like good people doing good work, wanting to really help their clients in the best way possible. So it's not like it's an uphill battle. Like we have a lot of advocates in the legal profession. The institutions are just holding them back. Wow, Jack, you're right. Nika said that so well. Lawyers know they need to make the change, but there's an institutional quicksand holding them back. 
It's like the more you try to move and change, the harder you get sucked back in. If you'll let me take that quicksand analogy a little further, to escape quicksand, you need to think differently and you actually need to lie back to get your legs out. It seems almost counterintuitive, but it's your best bet. And in the legal industry, it's very similar. The solution to escaping the coming threat is to think differently. And that brings us to the end of the episode, which is where I ask you, Jack, what are you taking away from this conversation? What's sticking with you? You know, after hearing from Aaron, Jordan, and Nika with all their perspectives, this answer for me is four-pronged. The first takeaway is that lawyers know they need to adapt and change. They have that awareness and that the problem is urgent. Secondly, it's really the legal institution that's holding them back from changing. It's a system built to have immediate attention paid to current problems and not to prioritize long-term structural issues. Third, what really needs to drive this conversation is figuring out what kind of services will be so meaningful to clients that they're willing to pay for these services. And that leads us to our last piece. And that is that we need to apply business solutions to legal industry problems. That's something that feels uncomfortable to a lot of practicing lawyers and law firms, but it's necessary. So the path is quite clear. It's just about having the vision and taking the initiative to make that shift from being lawyer-centric to client-centric. That's how to escape the quicksand. Well, Jack, you've led us perfectly into the preview for our next episode. Join us next time where we'll really break down that difference between lawyer-centered and client-centered. We'll compare and contrast those two models and see where we end up. Well, until next time, Nefra, it's always a pleasure. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Jack. This has been a presentation of Season 2 of Matters, based on the client-centered law firm, the best-selling book by Jack Newton. Matters is hosted by Jack Newton and Nefra McDonald, produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and brought to you by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider. Be sure to subscribe to Matters wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit us at clio.com. To read Jack's book, search for The Client-Centered Law Firm wherever you buy your books.